Um, Let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, this morning, I pray over every single person sitting in these seats, over every single person who is sitting in a couch uh, at home, watching online, or traveling, or wherever they are. Um, Father, I pray for all the kids down in kids' ministry, for the preschool age kids and younger up in, up in the preschool kids' ministry. Lord, I pray for, uh, Lord, just this, everybody that's in this building, uh, everybody that's attached to this family today, Lord, that you would protect our lives. We read in the word, Lord, that, that when we stand up, when we resist our enemy, he flees, he runs. He runs from you, he runs from your presence within us. And so, God, just like that song we sang at the beginning, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. We don't have to invite you. We don't have to make you welcome. You're going to show up anyway. Um, but we want you to be a part of our lives. We want you to move in to begin that renovation process, that restoration process in who we are. Uh, and today, Father, I just ask that you would give us extra grace and extra mercy. Uh, Father, that, that your spirit would protect us, that your spirit would lead us, that your spirit would guide us um, against the schemes of, of our enemy, the devil. Lord, that we, we just pray that. We ask that in your name. And Lord, we know when we speak your truth, we proclaim your truth, and we proclaim who we are and whose we are, that we belong to you. He ain't got nothing against that. So, Father, today, may we do that. May we boldly stand firm in who we are in you. Uh, may we approach you with confidence, Lord, not afraid. Uh, Lord, but knowing that you welcome us in as your children, as your kids, sons of the king of the universe, and daughters of the king of the universe. So, Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Okay, are we ready? Everybody good? Um, all right, let me do it like a quick rewind real fast so we can kind of get all on the same page today. Because um, we're going to press into and we're actually going to dive a little bit deeper into kind of the things in our lives that we talked about last week. But if you weren't here last week, I just want to catch you up. We unpacked the fact last week that most of us in this room, I, I, would, I would guess most of us in this room, we have experienced moments when we kind of look at ourselves in the mirror or we think, we think to ourselves Right, this, there's this voice on the inside after something has happened right in our lives. We look at ourselves in, this, in the mirror, and there's this inside voice that kind of asks this question, why are you the way that you are? Like, why are you the way that you are? Why do you act the way that you act sometimes? Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you feel the way that you feel sometimes? And, and maybe even we take it a step further, and we say things to ourselves like, why can't you just get over that? Like, why can't you just get over that? Why, why, why do you have to, why, why can't you let it go? Why can't you move past it? Why, why can't you just be normal? And most of us, what we learned last week is that our lives are kind of divided into two separate parts. We use this kind of image of an iceberg. And on, on top is this surface level life, right? And what the surface level life is, is this is what I want you to see. Like the surface level of our lives is what we want people to see and what we want people to believe is real and true about us, even though it's not, right? It might be a half-truth. It might be kind of true. It might be something you wish were true. But regardless of that, the things that we want people to see, this is what we want people to believe about us. They want, we want them to believe that this is real and true, that, that our family really does look like our Instagram pictures, that we're put together, that we're wealthy, that we're happy, that we're successful, that we have status, that we have influence. And when people ask us how we're doing, we usually say, I'm fine, I'm good. When really, right, there's, I said, two parts, right? Everything else lives below the waterline in our lives, right? And below that waterline are things like we're afraid, we're, we're ashamed, we have regrets, we're anxious, we're messy, we have wounds in our lives. There's secrets that we try to keep. There are failures we try to cover up. There's guilt that we feel. We are lonely, if we're being honest, and some of us in the room have experienced real trauma. So on the surface is what I want you to believe is real and true about me, and below the surface is what's actually real and true. 
Right? This is what it actually looks like. This is, what, this is what actually happened. This is what my life really looks like. And what I said last week is it takes kind of three things, right? Here's what, here's what this life, like if we want to live this kind of life, right, of kind of one life on the surface and then everything else below the surface, here's what it requires of us, okay? Just going to be honest. Number one, you have to protect the surface life. You have to protect everything that exists on the surface. All of that stuff, all of the things you want people to believe are real and true about you, you kind of have to stand there and protect it. And you don't want to let people get too close because if they get too close, they'll see that it's fake, right? They'll see that it isn't real. They'll, they'll, they'll figure you out. So you have to protect that. You don't want people messing with that. You don't want people getting too close to that. So what do you do? You, you kind of keep relationships at, at arm's length. I can let you in, but just not too close, right? So the first thing we have to do is we have to protect our surface life. Otherwise, people are going to figure out that it's not real. The second thing we have to do is we have to hide behind the surface life, which is, again, we have to hide behind this, this front, this veneer, this thing that we want people to believe is real and true about us, because here's what's real and true, right? What's hiding behind the surface life, if we were being honest, is not the, is not the tough, manly, put-together dude Right? It's not the, I got my act together woman. It's not that. Here's what's really hiding behind the surface life. It's a scared, hurt, wounded little boy that wants everybody to believe that he's a tough man. It's a scared, hurt, wounded little girl that wants everybody to believe she's a strong woman. That's what's real and true. But we have to hide behind that surface life because we can't let people see that. And then the third thing is this, and somebody mentioned this in our home group, and I thought it was great. Like, the third thing you have to do is, you, you, while, you, while you're doing all of this, right, while you're protecting this, while you're hiding behind it, you also have to keep everything that's below the surface down below the surface. Uh, someone in our home group on Thursday talked about it. It's like when you try to hold, like, an inflatable, like a ball or whatever, underwater in a pool, right? It's like that. It takes a lot of energy to do that because you don't want to let that thing float up to the surface, and so we wonder, knowing these things, this is probably how most of us in some way, shape, or form have lived our lives at one point or another, right? You have to wonder, why are you so exhausted all the time? Because of this. That's why we're so tired. That's why we're so burnt out. That's why we're so stressed and anxious, right? It's because we're working real hard to make other people believe something about us that may or may not be true, and we're trying to hide all the things that actually are true. And so I just have to ask you this, okay? If, if this is, if you go, you know what? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of in that. I'm kind of in that. I'm kind of, I'm kind of do that. I do this from time to time. I find myself kind of in this, stuck in this cycle from time to time. I'm going to ask a really loaded question. How's that working out for you? Like, really? How's that working out for you? Because, again, I know, maybe, maybe you've built up such a surface life that's like, Brad, if I really let people see what's real and true, I'm going to lose everything. Or, Brad, if I come out from around behind this and I let people see who I really am, I, I'm, I, I might lose everything. Or if I even let this stuff up, surf, up, up, up above the surface a little bit, I, I might lose everything. How's that working out for you, really? Because my guess is this. It feels like you're going to lose everything. But the truth is you already are. The truth is you already are losing everything. Why? Because you're trying to make people believe something about you that isn't true. And what you stand to gain on the other side of honesty and integrity and transparency and authenticity is so much greater than anything you might lose. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to dive below the surface and we're going to get into the things beneath the things in our lives. And I know what you're probably thinking and asking. It's this. It's like, well, what, what, what does that actually look like? What does it look like to dive below the surface? What lives below the surface? We're, we're taking all this stuff from a book. The inspiration's coming from a book, same name, The Thing Beneath the Thing, by a guy named Steve Carter. 
And, and in this book, he uses this acrostic, right? And here's what it is. What usually lives below the waterline in our lives are these things. Number one, triggers, right? The things that set us off. Number two is our hideouts, the places we go, the places we try to hide behind, the things that we try to do, the people we try to be, those kind of where we run off to when things don't go well, right? Our hideouts, our insecurities, the places where we feel vulnerable and exposed, right? Where, where, where we're scared, right? This is like, this is the weakness in our armor, this, whatever this thing is. Narratives, those are the stories that we kind of make up. The, see, here's the thing, human beings, people, we are, we are, we are story-formed people, we're narrative-based people, story and narrative is what human beings use to make sense of the world around us, right? So we, what we do is we make up stories because it helps us to understand what's going on around us. And sometimes, sometimes we create narratives that just aren't true, right? We create narratives that aren't true because in some way, shape, or form, it's going to help us make sense or numb out or hide or deflect or redirect from what actually is true. So we're going to create, up a, we're going to create a different story. Those are our narratives. And then ultimately is grace. That's at the end. And you can see it spells thing, right, which is pretty clever. So the thing beneath the thing, this is usually what lives below the surface in our life. And grace is what we're going to be letting into some of these spaces. So we talk about grace. Grace is what we're going to let into some of these spaces in our lives. Because as I started writing this week, I started thinking and asking myself this question as it relates to the things beneath the things in my own life. Is this, what would happen? Like, what would happen in my life if I let God's grace get its hands on the triggers that set me off? Like, what would happen if I, if I let God's grace into that space? What would happen if, if God's grace found you and me in the places that we go to hide and the people we try to be? What would happen? What would happen if God's grace supported the places where you and I feel insecure and weak and vulnerable and exposed? What would happen if God's grace met us in that spot? What would happen if God's grace redeemed and restored and repurposed the narratives, the stories in our lives? And really, as I started thinking about those questions, what I realized is that, that, that those questions have answers. Great, right? Based on how the morning's gone, I'm standing up on a stage underneath a bunch of electricity holding onto a metal microphone. This is going to end well, right? Here's what, <laughs> here's what I figured out is this, that the answers to all of those questions about God's grace getting into those spaces, they all have answers. And the answers to those questions, that's why we're doing this series. That's why we're going to spend six weeks, five weeks, whatever it is, talking about this kind of stuff. Because here's the deal. We want to, whether you know it or not, right, we want to, we need to experience what happens in our lives when God's grace gets into the parts of our lives that we try to bury and hide below the surface. We need to experience that. Like the song, open up the windows, let the light in, right? It's time. It's time for the old winds to change. It's time for the dead men to rise. That's what it, I, I hear the Spirit say. It's time. That's why we sing that song. That's why that song is our theme for this series. But if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter, right? 1 Peter chapter 1. It's kind of in the back. So you're kind of, I don't know, probably 80, 85-ish percent of the way through the Bible in the New Testament. 1 Peter Chapter 1, if you need a Bible, we've got free ones back on that table in the back by the door. You can take those home. Those are for you. Um, and if you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app, you can follow along on the screen here as well. So here's what it says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. This is Peter talking to a group of people like us, trying to figure out what it's like to live the with God life amidst lots of pressure. 
right? People that have been kind of scattered throughout persecution, people who, who are, are trying to figure out, like, what does it look like for us? Like, how, do we, how do we live the way that Jesus wants us to live? How do we pursue the, way, the life that Jesus makes possible in the midst of all this junk going on in our lives, right? Here's what he says. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's the, the, what's the therefore, therefore? The therefore is there, right, for this reason, for us to make sure that our minds are focused on the right things, right? Make sure that you set your mind on and your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, right? The way that you lived before you realized that there's a different way to live. I mean, for a lot of people, we live the way that we live sometimes, and it's, here's the reason why. We don't know any better. We don't know any different. We don't know that there's a different way to live that Jesus invites us into. Or we assume, because of the way we've lived, that there's no way that that kind of life is for me, right? There's no way that Jesus wants somebody like me. But we know this, right? What we read in Scripture is that there's nobody too messy, too broken, or, or too messed up, or disqualified from living the life that Jesus wants you to live. That's the truth, right? But for a lot of us, it is. For one reason or another, we just think, like, I can't, I don't know any better, or I can't get in there. But he says, listen, don't live that way. Don't live that way. Peter says, don't go back to the old way of life. But he says this, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now what in the world does that mean, right? The word holy in the Bible means this, right? It, it's, the, it's a word that's meant to describe the kind of person God is. Right? It was one of those words when, when the writers and authors of the Bible were trying to, to describe just what's God like? like. When people were like, what's God like? Like, what's he like? When they were trying to figure out a word to use to describe what God is like, they chose the word holy. What does the word holy mean? It means unique, set apart, and unlike anything else. Right? So when we talk about the holiness of God, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the unlike anything or anyone else-ness of God. Like that's, it's, it's, he is alone. He stands alone. There is nothing and no one like him. But here's the cool thing. What we read in 1 Peter is what Jesus invites us into, what Jesus makes possible, is a life that's rooted in and participates in God's holiness. God doesn't keep his holiness for himself. Right? He invites us into it. He, he allows us to take part in it. He shares that with us. And so what Jesus offers us in holiness is a life that's unique and different. As we grow in holiness, what we, do, what we grow in, we grow also in a life that's set apart. It doesn't conform. It doesn't look like anything else in the same way that God doesn't look like anything else. What Jesus called it, Jesus called it the abundant life, right? Jesus said it is life to the full. It is life maxed out. It is 10 out of 10, right? What we call it here at Adventure, which helps us make sense of it, is the with God life. It's we get the chance to live a life in relationship, not just in religion, but in relationship with God. God with us but also God within us in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's the thing that Jesus makes possible. It's a life that's lived differently. And so in the book, The Thing Beneath the Thing, Steve Carter, he says this. When he talks about 1 Peter, this, this verses we just read in 1 Peter, he says the call from this passage is that we're meant to be set apart. Our lives as believers and followers of Jesus, we are meant to be set apart to live a life that is consecrated, right, that's special, right, a life, again, that means something that's purposeful, that's set apart, that's unique, that's on mission and for a purpose. And he says this, when we choose holiness, 
we are choosing to live, right? We are living from a spiritually whole and spiritually healthy place. So here's what I, what I need us to understand when it, when it relates to the why of why are we going to spend six weeks talking about our emotional health and our mental health and how those things affect all of who we are. Here's why. The pursuit, the pursuit of the abundant life that Jesus, the only Jesus makes possible. Like Jesus is the only way to the abundant life. There is no other way. There's not a back door or a side door, right? Jesus is the only way into the abundant life. What that, is, what that pursuit is actually of, like what it's a part, what's a part of that is holiness, like when we begin to pursue the with God life and follow Jesus, we also begin to pursue the kind of holiness that Jesus provides. And there's no other life like the with God life. There's no other life. And so what we need to kind of know and understand is this, that following Jesus into holiness, it leads us into increased or more spiritual wholeness. And the word whole in, in scripture, the word for wholeness in scripture is peace. I think that's interesting that the word for wholeness in scripture doesn't, peace doesn't mean absence of conflict, right? It means wholeness, completeness, being made whole. And so when we follow Jesus into holiness, right, as we look to increase our holiness through Christ, what also increases are things like spiritual wholeness, spiritual peace, emotional wholeness, emotional peace, mental wholeness, mental peace, and then physical wholeness, physical peace, right? That's what increases, as we step into the with God life, and at the end of the day, here's where all of this leads, okay? The, the with God life doesn't have and doesn't need a water line because there's nothing to hide. Think about that. Go back to that separated life, the above the surface and below surface. Here's the thing. When we live the with God life, there's no need to try to keep people away from our lives. We don't have to keep people at, an arms, at arm's length. We don't have to hide behind some fake version of who we try to be, right? We don't have to force parts of our lives down where nobody can see them. And so I want to make the why of why we're doing this really clear today. Because here's the thing. Before we really start unpacking the things beneath the things, I'm just going to let you know. It's going to be hard work. It is. It's going to be hard work to turn and face some of the stuff that you haven't faced in a long time. And if the why behind why we're doing this isn't clear, we won't do it. We won't. Why? Because it's difficult. And we'll find it difficult, and we won't press forward. So, again, I want to make sure that this is really clear. The reason why we're doing this whole series, the reason why we're having all of these conversations is this. In order for you and I to experience the holy, abundant, with God life that Jesus wants and makes possible for us, we have to be willing to get after and let God into the things beneath the things. Right, there's this saying amongst Navy SEALs, right? If you, want, if you want to live a life like no other, you have to be willing to do what no one else is willing to do. Right? If you want to be like no one else, you have to be willing to do the things that no one else is willing to do. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. We, if we want to live this holy life, this abundant life, if we want to lean more and more into that, we have to be willing to do hard things. And the flip of that is this, nothing, nothing changes, everything stays the same in your life. Steve Carter says this, if you don't work to become aware of the thing beneath the thing, your life will stay the same. Your potential, the beauty that is begging to be unleashed within you will be stunted. You'll be settling for something less than who God desires you to be. And that's a big part of who adventure is. Like we say, come as you are and become all that God desires you to be. Now, we wouldn't be leading you and discipling you in the right way if we didn't turn and face some of the junk that we hide in our lives, right? So we got to do some hard stuff here. So here's what we're going to talk about today, right? Grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Exodus. We're going to live for the rest of the time in the book of Exodus, right? Exodus chapter 2, the beginning of that. So 1 Peter was kind of towards the end. Exodus is 
almost right at the very beginning. So Exodus chapter 2, what we're going to talk about today are our triggers, right? We're going to talk about our triggers, and we're going to answer and kind of look at three different things. What are our triggers? How do they work? And what do they do to us and to other people? That's what we're going to talk about today. And I told you last week that we're going to look into the life of a guy named Moses. At every single one of these stories, we're going to look into the life of a person in Scripture. Why? Bible people are Bible. Bible people are just people people, right? A lot of times we think people in the Bible, they're special, they're unique, they don't have problems, they got their life all put together, that's how they made it in the Bible, right? That's not true. They're people just like us, right? And so it's important for us to understand that. So we're going to look into the lives of some of the people in the Bible. And this guy that we're going to look at when it comes to triggers is a guy named Moses, And what happens in Moses' life is Moses gets triggered, right? And everything in Moses' life changes from that point forward. And so we're going to start at that moment. We're going to start at the moment that Moses gets triggered, and then we're going to work our way backwards to figure out where it all came from. So it says this, Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It says, one day Moses had grown up. It says that he went out to see his people, went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Exodus tells us that he looked this way and that, right, and saw that no one was there. And so what did he do? He struck down the Egyptian, which means he killed the Egyptian, and hit him in the sand. And it tells us that he went out the next day, and behold, which I love, I think like we need to bring behold back into our, behold, it's raining, right? Um, he says, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And the guy looks back at him and says, well, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Did you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Exodus tells us that Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing, which I love that, the thing is known. The thing beneath the thing just popped up above the surface. And when Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, heard about it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and there he sat down by a well. So you can tell, major moment in Moses' life. And this is kind of how the thing beneath the thing in our lives, right, it causes kind of fundamental and monumental shifts if they go unchecked, right? So, and, and there's a thing about even if we don't think that they will, like Moses, Moses, like he looked around and said, hey, I don't think there's anybody here. I can let this, I mean, I can let this dog off the chain real quick, and I don't think I'll be found out. A lot of us, it is, we think these things in our lives, like we don't, I don't think this is going to make that big of a splash. I don't think this is going to cause that much. I, but you know, I don't really see anybody around. I think I'm okay. But here's the thing I want us to look, I want us to look at exactly what happened. Just in these few verses, here's what we know. First thing, Moses is ethnically a Hebrew man. And here's what that means. His people were from Israel, and they're living in Egypt, right? So they're living in a a foreign land. And in these few verses, what we learn is that Moses went out to where his people were, and what he sees is the Bible tells us they were burdened, right? We'll come back to that in a minute. But what you need to remember right now is that Moses, ethnically a Hebrew man, number two, the Hebrew people, Moses' people, they were burdened. Just remember that. It says that as Moses is looking on the burdens of his own people, kind of the general burdens, of his own people, the general state of things, things start to get personal. And that's kind of how it works, right? Like we kind of live in this general state of chaos and anxiety. We kind of live in this general state of tension right now in our country and in our world. There's just tension everywhere you go. There's general tension. When you look, watch the news, read the paper, whatever it is, just even when you're hanging out with your coworkers or neighbors, whatever it is, there's tension. There's general tension. But here's what happens. General tension, general chaos, general whatever gets personal. It gets personal for Moses. He witnesses an Egyptian 
beating one of his own people. And the burden for Moses went from general to personal in an instant. And that's what triggers Moses. Moses is now triggered. And when that happens, when things get personal, here's what we need to remember. Moses gets triggered and does damage. He kills a guy. Remember I said last week, odds are you probably haven't outsend people in Scripture, right? Moses gets triggered and he kills a guy. Moses did his best to minimize the collateral damage, right? Because he looked this way and that. He assumed that there was no witnesses. But when we're triggered, no matter how hard we, we try to keep it contained, let's just be real, it usually doesn't stay that way. And the next day, he sees two Hebrew guys fighting, and he breaks up the fight. And one of the guys looks at Moses and says, what are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you did that guy last night? Yeah, we know about that. We heard about that. And the next thing we need to know is that Moses' triggers, they expose the thing beneath the thing. Right? He says, the thing is known. That thing that I tried to hide, that thing that tried to, that tried to keep submerged below the, the surface and, and tried to live the surface life, right? that thing is known. And what happens is he runs, he runs away. He runs away. And his response, like ours, right, a, lo a lot of times when our triggers fire, right, we run away. Why? Because Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful man on the planet, also now knows about the thing beneath the thing, and he's looking to kill Moses, right? Somebody found out. Somebody that I didn't want to know found out about the thing beneath the thing, and now they're after me. Now I got an email to meet in my boss's office. I got an email from the, the principal at school. Whatever it may be, like now somebody knows about the thing beneath the thing, and now I'm in trouble. So this is what we know so far, but let's back up. If you back up into kind of where Genesis turns the page into Exodus, we find the story of a guy named Joseph. We're going to go all the way back, right? Joseph was a Hebrew teenager when we first meet him. And right, Joseph, he goes from being someone who is sold into slavery and a, and a prisoner and a slave in Egypt. He goes from that to being the number two guy in charge of the whole thing. And while he's running the show, while Joseph is running the show, there's a famine that affects the whole world. And because God revealed truth to Joseph through his dreams, what he did, what, what Joseph was able to do is he was able to help not only Egypt survive, but to help others survive in the famine. And so Egypt, because of God and Joseph working together, has plenty of food stored up. And so what happens in this global famine is the whole world comes to Egypt looking for food and a way to stay alive. And that includes all of the people from Israel, all of the Hebrew people. And the king, who in Egypt we call Pharaoh, liked Joseph. Joseph was a Hebrew kid worked his way up, like climbed the ladder, right? God, God kept giving him success, 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 put him into a place where he was number two in charge of Egypt, right? And Pharaoh liked Joseph, and because of that, he liked the Israelites, and the Hebrew people were safe in Egypt, but all that's about to end. If you look at Exodus chapter one, starting at verse six, it says this, then Joseph died, and all of his, and, and all of his brothers in that entire generation. Now you skip down a little bit, it says, now there, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, it says, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they could join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Like, they're afraid. They're afraid what, what's going to happen. Like, look, look like that, that population of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they've grown too big. And if, and if somebody comes in to want to fight us, they might join them. And if they join them, we're in trouble. And this is what it tells us. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And here's what the burdens are. It says, they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field. And, their, and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
right? That's a burden. But it gets worse. It says, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women, when you see them on the birth stool, if they give birth to a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, let her live. And the Bible tells us that these midwives, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, so they didn't do it. They didn't kill the, the Hebrew baby boys, right? They didn't do that. So, so Pharaoh takes it up a notch. He said, all right, if you won't do it, I'll get everybody else to do it. In verse 22, it says this. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but you should let every daughter live. Not only are they being used as slave labor ruthlessly, making their lives bitter, now all of a sudden they're going in and they're killing their kids. That's a burden. You turn the page to chapter 2, here comes Moses. Exodus tells us that Moses' biological parents were Hebrew, Hebrew mom and dad, and that his mom and dad, they, they, they hid him until he was three months old, and his mom couldn't hide him anymore. Why? He was a Hebrew baby boy. Why is she hiding him? He's a Hebrew baby boy, and everybody in Egypt knew that you're supposed to kill him at birth, throw him in the Nile. The Bible tells us that his mom puts three-month-old Moses in a watertight basket and sends him down the Nile River. We pick up in verse 4. It says, his sister, Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. So it's like, hey, you watch, make sure everything goes okay, right? And the daughter of Pharaoh, the Bible tells us, came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside her in the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman to check it out. Like, what is this? And so she brings it up out of the water. She opens it up, and she sees there's a baby boy inside. Surprise! And behold, the baby was crying, and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Now, again, God takes care of a lot of things in here. See, Moses' older sister, Miriam, was standing close by, and when they said, oh, it's a Hebrew baby, Miriam's just close enough to go, would you look at that? Like, what a surprise, what a shocker. And then Miriam says, do you, do, would you like me to go find a, a Hebrew woman to, like, feed him and nurse him and, and take care of him? And Pharaoh's daughter's like, yeah, let's do that. And so Moses' sister, Miriam, brings Moses' own mom, right, back to him. And it's like, here's one, found one, random, right, super random, crazy that they were this close. So Moses' own mom gets him back. But here's what happens in verse 10. Check out what it says. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. That's what his name means, drawn up from the water. Now, here's what we know, okay? Moses has got some real baggage. Moses has got some history. Moses has got a past. He was, raised by, he was raised to a certain age by his actual Hebrew mom and dad. So here's what we can guess, right? The Bible doesn't tell us this, but, but here's what we can imagine, right? We can imagine that growing up until a certain age with Hebrew parents, he saw, heard, and experienced firsthand the level of cruelty his people lived under. There probably wouldn't have been many Hebrew boys around. Why? Because so many of them were killed off. And Moses knew he should have been killed by the order of a king, and he knows that he really and truly belongs to an oppressed people who are held captive and used for slave labor, and now he's the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. He gets handed over to this other woman by his biological parents, and so now he's a prince and he's a king. Yeah, that's great, right? He's a prince to the king, but here's the thing. He's also a member of the government, the same government that's been ruthlessly enslaving, beating, and killing and oppressing the people that he actually belongs to. You think there might be a little tension there? 
think there might be a little conflict in his, in his life. And that kind of brings us up to what we read a minute ago. And now you can probably see why Moses did what he did when he killed that Egyptian and he buried him in the sand when he was beating one of his own people. Moses didn't snap and lose his mind in one single moment. What we know is this, right? Moses witnessed years of brutality and oppression and injustice. And those years, all of that, all of that experience, all the pain, all the anger, all the hurt that had been piling up and piling up, it all came out sideways in one moment where Moses got triggered and that would change Moses' life forever. That's what we know. So let's unpack this really quick. Let's answer these questions. What, what are our triggers? What are triggers? Steve Carter says this, within each one of us, there's a collection of key moments, key moments in our stories, in our past, that we've carried under a shroud of shame and secrecy for a long, long time. The triggers are the emotions, our emotions, surrounding those events. See, a lot of times I think we look at the events as the events themselves are the triggers, but that's not the case. It's the emotion surrounding those events. So let's unpack this a little bit. Our triggers are the emotions and feelings that usually sh surround the painful, shameful, and hurtful events in our lives. That's what it is. We've got to identify this. I mean, one of the first things we have to do to be able to work on stuff in our lives is we have to locate the, the, the stuff that needs to be worked on, right? So that's what we're doing. We're going to locate. What are triggers? What are they? They're the emotions. They're the feelings that surround the painful, shameful, hurtful, wounding events in our lives. So what triggers are is they are the recognizable feelings in the present that remind us of the wounds from the past. This is true for Moses. Moses grew up experiencing the pain and hurt of his people in general. So in the past, Moses can look back and look at kind of a general pain and oppression and burden of his people. And all of those past events came out in these emotions and feelings that, that kind of exploded out of him in the present when he witnessed a specific personal moment, which is one of his people getting hurt. So it's not the event itself, but it's the emotion that feeling that we got, hey, I, that feels a lot like in the present. That feels a lot like this moment in the past. This, this moment in the present reminds me a lot of this moment. And then we get triggered. It's not the events themselves, but it's the feelings and the emotions. So, so how do they work? Like, how do our triggers work? Think back to physics class, right? You remember in physics class, especially like at the beginning of physics class, you, you, you really kind of learned about two things, right? Potential energy and kinetic energy. Think back to physics. Potential energy is the amount of energy within an object even though it's sitting at rest, right? Kinetic energy is when there's, there's an event that causes whatever's been sitting still to be put in motion. So, like the more air, hold on, here we go. The more air that I put into this balloon the more the potential energy grows, right? The more air I put into this balloon, the more potential energy it gets. Now, here's what happens, right? For that potential energy to, to become kinetic energy, an event has to take place. What's the event? I let it go, right? And now it's set in motion. All of that potential energy gets unleashed and let loose. So, so here's where this is going, right? When we talk about how our triggers work, what do they do? Our triggers are not the events of the past hurt, despair, pain, hurt, and betrayal wounds, right? That's the air in the balloon. The air in the balloon are all of those events you can point to in your story. You go, I got hurt here. I got betrayed here. Right here, I felt despair. Right here, I was wounded. Right here, I was, I was disappointed. Here, all of the, those events, that's the air in the balloon. 
But our triggers are what happens. It's, it's the event in the present that releases all of that stored up energy that's been piled up. Again, here's a great quote. It says, when you and I get triggered, all of that energy from past hurts has to be channeled and transferred somewhere. And the truth is, we may not be in danger of plotting murder, but if we don't deal with them, destructive emotions will take up residency somewhere, and we will put ourselves and others at risk. A lot of us, we're walking around as fully inflated balloons, and it's just a matter of time before that thing pops. It's a matter of thing, a matter of time before some event lets go and lets all of that energy out. So here's what happens. Here's what happens when we get triggered. I listened to a guy. I got a chance to go to Colorado a couple weeks ago. I listened to a guy, Rourke Denver. He's a former Navy SEAL commander. We got to hear him speak at this retreat. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me was this. He said, you know, one of the reasons that Navy SEALs practice and they take so much time and so much care and they show so much caution when they're shooting their weapons is this. He said, because once you squeeze the trigger, you can't get the bullet back. Once you squeeze the trigger, you can't get the bullet back. It's going to hit something. And there's no take back. There's no rewind. So you want to make sure that you're hitting what you're aiming at. And what happens when you and I get triggered is this. We end up blindly firing off rounds that we can never get back. And some of us know what that feels like. Because we've been the one that squeezed the trigger and we fired off rounds that we'd give anything in the world to take back. And some of us know exactly what it feels like because we've been hit by rounds that we didn't deserve. They should have never been fired. We were innocent bystanders, and we got hit simply because we were close by. We've said this before at Adventure. Hurt people, people that are hurt, hurt people. Right? Hurt people, hurt people. And the people that we usually hurt are the ones that are closest to us, right? Sometimes we hurt people or we get hurt. Why? Because relationally we're close to someone. Sometimes it's because our relational closeness, we're the ones that get hurt or we're the ones that do the hurting. We hurt the ones we're closest to. And sometimes we hurt the ones that we're closest to because it's, they're in proximity. They're, just, they're the people I can get my hands on in this moment. I'm angry. I'm triggered. Whatever it is, this is the per- it's the first person that I see. I may or may not have any relationship with them, but you know what? I'm angry because something happened at the office, and I'm, you cut me off on the Gene Snyder, and you know what? Now what? It's full Mad Max. I'm going to run you off the road. People are like, Brad, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. So the question is this, how do we deal with our triggers? How do we deal with these? In the book, Steve Carter, he talks about a formula that was developed and made famous by a guy named Jack Canfield. And it's this, the formula is E plus R equals O. And what that stands for is the event plus the response equals the outcome. That's how we deal with our triggers. If you're taking notes or you want to grab a picture of the screen, this is one you want to grab a picture of. Because we all got triggers. We all have emotions that surround these painful events in our past that come up in our present. And when they do, the trigger gets squeezed, the balloon goes off, or the balloon explodes. We want to know how to change this. This is how we change this. The event plus the response equals the outcome. Carter would say this. He says, you and I, we don't have control of, of the events of our lives. Things will happen. He says, you often have zero control over, the thing, over these things and countless others. The only thing you can control is your response. So whatever the event might be, your response to it, the choice you made, determines the outcome. By changing our response, we change the outcome. By changing the way we respond to these events, we change the outcome. 
Here's what we need to understand. We need to understand that our triggers, we need to understand what they are and how they work. And the only way we can do that, the only way we can begin to understand our triggers and how they work is we've got to press into and we've got to face the pain that we've got stored up. Otherwise, we're just treating the symptoms and not the problem. And until we begin to, to treat the core problem, right, here's the truth. You're going to be a risk. I'm going to be a risk to anyone that happens to be close to us, relationally or in proximity. Anybody that's inside the blast radius, when you go off, we're a risk. And here's what happens. The, the, the more we push into the pain and the wounds from our past, the more that our, our response in that formula begins to change. And the more our response changes, the more the outcomes change. So I don't want to just talk at you. I, I want to share with you. Right? Because this requires a level of, of vulnerability and authenticity. Right? We're a church family. So I just want to tell you a little bit about my, my, my own personal story as it relates to triggers. See, a lot of my wounds and a lot of the past events in my life, the things that hurt, the pain in the past, it, it comes from performance. Right? It comes from basically this. If you want love and approval, you have to earn it. If you want to be loved, if you want to be approved, if you, if, you want, if you want to achieve, if you want to be paid attention to, if you want affection, you have to earn that. And here's the thing. Anytime, now in the present, anytime I mess up, anytime I'm not the best, anytime I don't do the best, if it was less than perfect or I didn't get the respect I thought I deserved in this moment, those events in the present, they remind me of the emotions and the events and the feelings in my past. And that triggers me. That triggers all my insecurity. We're, we're going to talk about that here in, in a few weeks. And that, that causes me to run and hide out. When I get triggered, where do I go? I run. Why? Because I'm afraid. Why? Because I'm insecure. I feel vulnerable. I feel weak. I feel exposed. And here's where I run. I don't know about you, but here's where I run and here's where I hide out. I hide out in anger. And the reason that I hide out in anger is because things like scared or sad or even tenderhearted, like those kinds of things feel really weak. Being sad or being scared feels weak to me. But anger feels strong. That feels like that's a strong emotion. That's a way I can power back up again, right? So, so when, I don't, when, I don't, when I don't live up to my own standard, which is unrealistic, right, and my own unrealistic standard is, is connected to, you know, messaging and wounds that I got when I was younger that's like, Brad, if you want anybody to care about you, you better perform. You better be better than anybody else. If you want anybody to love you, you better be better than anyone else. You better earn it. When I'm, when I'm made to feel small, and usually the one that makes me feel small is me. Like we said last week, nobody says crueler things to us than us. Usually I hide out in anger and what I look for are cheap and easy ways to make myself feel powerful again. Anybody else? I look for cheap and easy ways to make myself feel powerful again. Maybe that's finding somebody I can, I can make them feel small. I can push them down so that I can push myself back up a little bit. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something like that that we run to. But here's the thing. Here's what I realized. The more that I pressed into the wounds and pains from my past, the more I understood my triggers. And even though, right, there are events that happen in my present that remind me of my past hurt, those emotions feel similar, my response is different now. I'm still growing. It ain't perfect. 
But something, and you can take this, something we borrowed this, Christy and I borrowed this from, from a friend of ours, but, but something we do in our home is when, when there's, a, there's a feeling, and we know like, there's, there's, an, there's a feeling and emotion that, that, that's here in this present that, that's connected to an event in the past that was painful. I just, we confess that to one another. We share that with one another. And here's what it sounds like in our house. I don't need you to fix this. I just need you to know this. And what that does is that takes all of that stuff that we hide, repress, and deny, all of that stuff that we try to shove below the surface, and it brings it out. Instead of it, instead of it exploding out, I reach in, and I grab it, and I pull it out, and I show it. Hey, hey Christy, I just need you to know. I don't, I don't know. I think I know why I'm feeling this way. I think I know what all this is connected to. And, and I don't need you to try to fix it right now. Pressure's off. But can she fix it? Absolutely. Can she speak into it? Absolutely. But a lot of times when we share our problems with people, like we feel this burden or they feel that burden to go like, well, let me, let me speak into this and let me fix it. By just taking that off the table, it relieves all that pressure from her. She doesn't have to fix it in the moment. Right? We can circle back to it later. But it's like, listen, honey, I, I, I don't need you to fix this. I just need you to know this. You know, today in this meeting or in this conversation, somebody said this and, and, and it brought this up. And I remembered this past event. And all that feeling and all that emotion around that event, it came up, it came up again. I got, I got disappointing news. Somebody told me no. I offered to do this and someone didn't take me up on my offer. I, I, I don't need you to fix this. I just need you to know that when they said that, Here's what it brought up. We press into those moments. We press into that pain. I don't need you to fix this. I just need you to know it. And here's what I need you to know, and here's what I need you to understand. As we look at this story of Moses and what God does with Moses' triggers is God leads Moses back into some scary and painful places in his life. It says this in Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 11. God literally asks Moses to go back into Egypt, back into the most painful place that he's ever experienced in his whole life. And Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children, all of the people that are held captive in slavery, out of Egypt? And here's what God says. You're not going alone. Because Moses is like, who am I? Why, why are they going to listen to me? And God says, you're not going alone. I'll be with you. And then Moses looks at God and says, well, well, who are you exactly? And here's God's answer, I am who I am. So church, here's what I need you to know today is this. As we deal with the triggers in our lives, which dealing with the triggers in our lives means turning and facing the areas that are painful, right? You do not go alone. I am goes with you. And so when you ask, who's going to go with me? God says, I am. Who's going to help me deal with this pain? God goes, I am. Well, well, who am I to, who am I, you're not going alone, I'm going with you. Who, who can heal these wounds? Who's the, who's the one that can heal this? Who's the one that can deal with this? And God goes, I am. I am. To every single question we bring him, to every single doubt we have, God responds with his own name, I am. So church, that's what I want to invite you into today. We're going to sing a worship song, we're going to pray and here just a minute and um, I just want you over this next song to start thinking through, like, what are those spaces where maybe nobody else would go with you? Maybe no one else would answer the call. Maybe no one else would, would step into that space. But God goes, I am. I'll go. I'm in. 
You don't have to go alone. You don't have to face it by yourself. I'll go with you. I want us to think about that as we sing this next song. If you want to, to say yes to Jesus, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before and you want to do that, here today would love to help you do that. If you need prayer, I would love to pray with you. If you want to join our church, become a part of our church, would love to, to, to talk through that as well. There's also a place, if you just want to pray, there's a place right here for the cross that you can sit and kneel and spend your own time there talking with Jesus, maybe inviting him into being, letting, letting I am come into those places where maybe you wouldn't go before. Let's pray together. Jesus, you're good. We love you. And we thank you that, that you go with us. We thank you that, that we see in your word that, that the king of the universe, the author and creator of all things, says you don't have to go into these scary, painful places by yourselves. I'll go too. So Jesus, we invite you into those spaces in our lives. We worship you now. In your name we pray. Amen.